0: This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Hello everyone. This is Sean Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. Thanks for listening. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com but we're also on almost every podcast platform as well as Odyssey and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. We trust that people want to have a better understanding of these precious organizations. We make listeners aware of how the organization is supported, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We believe this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Remember that your donations are tax-deductible, and many larger companies will even match your donations, which is a great thing. Each guest organization on Preservation Oaks brings with them a truly unique perspective around how they tell the story of their communities, how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they've created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and diverse. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical January events and birthdays for this episode. On January 2, 1905, the Russians surrendered to the Japanese after the Battle of Port Arthur during the Russian-Japanese War. A peace conference was later held in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with President Theodore Roosevelt serving as a mediator. In September 1905, the Russians agreed to the Treaty of Portsmouth, yielding Port Arthur and the lyon Peninsula to Japan. Russia also agreed to evacuate Manchuria and recognized Japan's interests in Korea. On January 3, 1959, Alaska was admitted as the 49th U.S. state with a land mass almost one-fifth the size of the lower 48 states together. On January 11, 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General declared cigarettes may be hazardous to your health, the first such official government report. Happy birthday to Martin Luther King, who lived from 1929 to 1968. He was born on January 15th. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia. As an African American civil rights leader, he spoke eloquently and stressed nonviolent methods to achieve equality. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. He was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4, 1968. In 1983, the third Monday in January, was designated a legal holiday in the U.S. to celebrate his birthday. On January 21, 1954, the USS Nautilus, the world's first nuclear-powered submarine, was launched in Groton, Connecticut. On January 25, 1959, an American Airlines Boeing 707 made the first scheduled transcontinental U.S. flight, traveling from California to New York. That was in 1959. Couple of jokes. There was an elderly couple who, in their old age, noticed that they were getting a lot more forgetful. So they decided to go to the doctor. The doctor told them they should start writing things down so they don't forget. They went home and the wife asked her husband to get her a bowl of ice cream and whipped cream and a cherry on top. You might want to write it down, she said. The husband said, no, I can remember that you want a bowl of ice cream with whipped cream and a cherry on top. So he goes to the kitchen and spends an unusually long time there, over 30 minutes. He comes out to his wife and hands her a plate of eggs and bacon. The wife stares at the plate for a moment, then looks up at her husband and asks, Where's the toast? A mom texts, Hi, son. What does IDK, LY, and TTYL mean? He texts back, I don't know, love you, and talk to you later. The mom texts him, It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll ask your sister. Love you too. A little bit of Twining's tea. Love Twining's tea. Now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Preservation Oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms, as well as Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we'll be doing something a little different. In episode 31, I let listeners know that we wanted to speak with a professional archivist and curator so that we could share with our listeners what they do, the value of having one, when should a museum, cultural, heritage, historical, or genealogical society think about adding this role, the key standards they follow, and the costs involved. I think listeners who support these societies want to understand more about this, and I wanted to learn more myself. Well, on our next episode, we'll be chatting with Ms. Cheyenne Yanstadter, who is an archivist manager for a well-known museum. I'm looking forward to this episode and learning more about archivists. We'll schedule another episode with a curator. Both of these episodes will be fun and interesting. For this episode, we greet Ms. Heather Moran, the president of the Camden Rockport Historical Society located in Rockport, Maine. If you're a resident in the local area, this episode will help you understand what the society has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the society sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. Here's a brief biography of our guest. Ms. Heather Moran has a master's degree in library and information science and has been the president of the Camden Rockport Historical Society for six years. In addition to that, She is the lead archivist at the Maine State Archives. She was previously director of the Walsh History Center at the Camden Public Library and served three terms as president of the Association of Maine Archives and Museums. She also serves on the Maine Historical Records Advisory Board and is co-chair of the New England Archivist Teaching with Primary Sources Roundtable. In her spare time, she is a member of the Friends of the Mount Batty Tower Steering Committee and also of Legacy Rockport, an organization that identifies and helps fundraise for local history preservation projects. She also updates biographical information on approximately 6,000 graves in Camden, Rockport, and Lincolnville for Find a Grave. Heather was photo editor and digitization archivist for the book where the Mountains Meet the Sea, a History of the Camden Area, 1900-2000. to 2000. Her book, Images of America, Camden, and Rockport Revisited, was published by Arcadia Press in 2015. Welcome to the program, Heather. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: You know, I really want to let people know that Camden Rockport Historical Society has a great website. Really well done and maintained.
1: Are you doing that yourself, Heather? Pretty much, yes. We just revamped that website last year with the help of Pulse Marketing. It's it's really come out well. I'm so happy with it. We have you know, input from board members, of course, but pretty much it's me behind the scenes trying to keep information up to date. Well, it
0: sure is beautiful. You also live in a beautiful area of our country. It's like the town is sort of buried deep in the woods. I know even on Google Earth, when I tried to go to see all of the buildings on your property, all I could get mm-hmm. to was the beginning because Google Earth hadn't even gone down the, the lane where you, <laughs> where you guys reside.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting and very beautiful area here on the coast of Maine. We're, we're about smack dab in the middle. It is one of the places where... The mountains truly do meet the sea in Camden. We are fortunate; we have a lot of beauty. Tourists love coming here, but it's also a lot of wild spaces where people can get away and get into the woods and and unwind. If that's if that's their thing to do. Yep, I've never
0: lived on the ocean. I've lived close. I was in the Bay Area, San Francisco, for fifteen mm-hmm. years, but I've never lived on the Atlantic coast. Does the Bay there, the Penobscot Bay?
1: It has in the past. In fact, I have a photograph taken by my great-great-grandparents where the bay froze in, I think it was around 1937, and they could literally walk from their house, which was also right on the shore. They had a saltwater farm. They could walk across to an island in the bay called Islesboro, it's a fairly big island, but it's you know it's about three miles away by ferry, so that's oh. a good distance for saltwater to freeze. Oh yeah, holy cow! And I I wouldn't walk across it unless I was carrying a little dinghy you know behind me. Oh yeah, something like that. <laughs> and yeah. and you know saltwater ice is grainier; it's a, it's a definitely different consistency than fresh water, so I, I would be a little nervous.
0: I also noticed down by the port, there's a train engine and some lime kilns down by the harbor yeah. Master's house that are looks like you've been preserving them because they got sort of roofs over them.
1: That is correct. That is thanks to a, a group in Rockport called Legacy Rockport, and it's a small group of folks that are interested in preserving history. I just joined the board of Legacy Rockport, and... They identified the lime trains as something that was really such an integral part of the Rockport area that they wanted to preserve
0: it. So that's what those are. Yeah, and you could go down there and see a train engine that used to haul the
1: lime, I guess? Yes. Yep. They quarried the lime right in the area and they would bring it by these, I guess they're narrow gauge railroads. Um, so they bring them by lime cars and it, you know maybe uh, 2 or 3 miles away and the train would dump the lime rock right into the top of the kilns which were literally right on the harbor and then they would cook the the lime rock down to make powder it's a it was a huge industry and they would use that in everything from mortar to chicken feed to uh putting in toothpaste
0: I'll be there. yeah they probably still do huh
1: they, yeah, I don't know. Certainly, the the lime industry here in the Camden Rockport area really was dealt a death blow in one day in 1907 when the kilns caught fire wow. and then basically set fire to the entire Rockport Harbor, oh um, and they never recovered from that. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, yeah, they're right Quite there on the ocean for a reason, for, right? You know, for a while, right and. And lime is is a funny thing. You really took your life in your hands if you were shipping lime because that was the most convenient way of moving materials back, you know, in the 1800s as they sent it by sailing ship. But lime reacts very badly with water. It oh, tends wow. to burst into flame. So it was a regular thing where these these schooners, which are basically three-masted sailing vessels, would uh burst into flame because seawater leaked into oh. the casks of lime in in the hold of these ships the ship would catch fire and they would just seal up the the hold abandon ship and it would burn down to the water line and then and oh my they'd goodness, go back and salvage it and rebuild it. I didn't know that about lime, yes a <laughs> oh,
0: <man. laughs> bad combination there. Very bad combination. So I know right across from that too is uh, a statue of somebody called Andre the Seal.
1: Yeah. Who was Andre? Oh, Andre. <laughs> Andre Andre is a uh, an icon in, in the community. He was a harbor seal that was rescued by a gentleman who lived in Rockport Harbor. His name was Harry Goodrich, and he found this young seal really too young to be away from its mother. And there is uh, shark activity in the area out in Penobscot Bay. And so Harry assumed that this young seal pup had lost its mother to a shark. So he helped hand raise the seal and he figured, you know, the seal would you know, go back to the, the water and, and that would be it. That seal stuck around and came back every single year to see Harry for oh, about 45 years.
2: My goodness.
1: <laughs> and I remember as a child I would go down to the harbor, Rockport Harbor, and there was a pen, uh, a seal pen in in the harbor and Andre was allowed to swim free. He was never confined in any way. Anyway. But he would appear in the seal pen and Harry would go out and He taught him to shoot basketball hoops, and he would perform all sorts of tricks, and it was really a fun thing. Uh, A lot of tourists came to see Andre the Seal.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Now, this is going
0: to sound like a stupid question, probably, to you. No question is stupid. But on the West Coast, there's surfing. Is there any
1: surfing around there? There isn't. We just don't have the... um, the big waves like you guys do out on the West Coast, the main coast is very, very ledgy and it goes deep. The water goes deep pretty quickly. Okay. Um, so we just don't have that, you know, maybe down in more Southern Maine, like down around the York Kittery area perhaps, but not up here in the Camden area.
0: Okay. Well, I know you have the Penobscot Bay, and that was, if I read correctly, that was named after the Penobscot Native American Nation. Yes. Do you have any ties to the
1: Penobscot Nation? I I am not a member of the Penobscot Nation, but I am currently working with the tribal historian in my day job where I'm an archivist at Date Archives and we are working together to help catalog and describe the Native American treaties that the state had with the different tribes. Oh, cool. They're still around, huh? They are. The Penobscot tribe is centralized in the Old Town area, and their history really does focus on the Penobscot River, which is one of the major rivers through Maine that opens up into Penobscot Bay. Uh, The other major tribes are the Passamaquoddy, which are in Washington County, which is farther north and east. And then there's the Maliseet and the Micmac tribes.
0: Wow. Okay. And all
1: of those tribes are still active in the area? They they are. They are. Uh, Not so much in Camden and Rockport. Like I said, uh, the Penobscots are focused more um, interior Maine, um, right. along the river and in Old Town. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's a great view. Yeah. Yeah. But we, you know, along the coast here, there are, there have been archaeological digs where they have uncovered shell middens, which are basically like shell heaps. They're the, the remainders of settlement and, and the food that the tribes Would partake of. They would travel around. You know, they would follow the the fish and game, and you know when they could harvest clams or other shellfish on the coast, they would build up these shell middens. So we can we can tell where they were from what they ate. I bet they ate a lot of what is it? Lobsters. Yep, clams. You can catch shrimp and scallops, and of course, lobster is a huge industry. I don't believe that the Native Americans ever fish for lobster. And, uh, you know, back in my great-grandfather's day, that was actually considered a a garbage food. Oh, really? Yeah, no kidding. Wow. So, Heather, what's the history of Knox
0: County, Maine, where Camden and Rockport are located?
1: So, Knox County is, um, it was not the first county formed in the state of Maine. It was actually um, carved out of parts of of Waldo and Lincoln counties. There's 16 counties within the state of Maine. Knox was named after General Henry Knox, who was a basically the right hand man for General George Washington during the American Revolution. And Henry Knox, he became the secretary of war and he had a huge mansion named Montpelier, which was located in Thomaston, Maine. Okay. So to honor him, you know, the county wasn't formed until 1860. But General Knox had passed away in in 1806 after supposedly choking on a chicken bone. He uh, they wanted to honor him, so they named it after Knox.
0: So he died in 1806,
1: and they Correct. named the county Knox in 1860. Correct. Okay, got it. Yes. Yeah. Yep. It was part of Lincoln County before that, and I believe the one time was also part of. Hancock County, there was, Maine is such a vast state geographically. Mm -hmm. To make it manageable, they had to start carving up these big pieces of land into smaller counties just, you know, for easier administration.
0: I know Maine is part of New England, what's considered New England. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the historical societies that I've interviewed have been in the Midwest and they Mm -hmm. started or their counties started with immigrants coming from all across the world into their mm-hmm. area. Some of them are, were religious sects, and some of them were of German ancestry, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. Knox County, did it start that way as well, or did was it primarily like English folks?
1: So uh, Maine was formerly known as the District of Maine. It was part of Massachusetts until 1820. Oh. That, that's an interesting and tangled history as well. You know, Mainers, it, it, the stock of Massachusetts, uh, the people who settled in Massachusetts were, you know, um, the more of the Puritan variety. Yeah. They were people seeking land from overseas. And then there there's successive waves, particularly like the Scotch-Irish that would come in. And they ended up migrating up the coast from Massachusetts into Maine. And by the time you had the Revolutionary War and then followed by the War of 1812, Massachusetts basically abandoned the settlers of Maine to to their own fate. They didn't defend them against, you know, warfare with what few tribal members still survived in the area. They didn't defend them from the British. And so it's to this day there is a <laughs> a distrust, or uh, dislike I should say, between Maine and Massachusetts. Oh, I and didn't it just know that. it's a long memory. I swear Mainers have the longest memory. It goes back that far. So you said that Maine was actually a part of Massachusetts until eighteen twenty? That is correct. It was, it was first known as the province of Maine that was established in 1636. I believe it was a grant from a land grant from King Charles of England to a gentleman named Ferdinando Gorges.
2: It's
1: quite a, quite an elaborate name, but he was sort of a land speculator and he was, he was determined he was going to make a lot of money and settle the The main area, uh, what he didn't count on was that maine's maine's soil is very tough to grow anything. It's sort of a hard scrabble soil, a lot of blueberry fields, but not great for agriculture like you have out in the midwest. So we have a lot of ledge and a lot of granite bedrock, so fishing really became one of the main industries and in timber. But as the years progressed, it then became known as the District of Maine. Massachusetts didn't really know what to do with Mainers, with the settlers, and they kind of ignored them. Uh, and then Maine got fed up and said, we want to be our own state. So they petitioned to be separate, and that was granted in 1820.
0: Wow, that's a very really interesting history. What's the yes. history of
1: Camden and Rockport? So Camden and Rockport, they were actually one entity. They were known by the town of Camden in the early years of settlement. So the first settler was James Richards, as far as we know from the historical record. He came up from Massachusetts and settled in the Camden area in about 1768, And, you know, keep in mind, this was, this was a a tough area. So, you know, to get to Maine, you would have to walk many, many, many miles through the woods. There were no roads back then, or you sailed. So he came in in 1768 and he was followed by Robert Thorndike, who settled in basically the next harbor, Rockport Harbor in 1769. But the whole area at that point was known as Camden um it was mahogany cook harbor in camden and rockport harbor was known as goose river okay. and they existed as one government entity so to speak until 1891 when the towns as it's recorded in history the towns went through a divorce okay they were fighting over repair of The Goose River Bridge, which is Goose River, empties into Rockport Harbor. The townspeople of Maine could not agree, excuse me, the townspeople of Camden and Rockport could not agree on financing the bridge and they petitioned the Maine legislature to divide. And there's been a a bit of a, a tension between the two towns, as small as they are, ever since. I told you, Mainers have long memories. (laughs) No kidding.
0: But your historical society is Mm -hmm. uh, for Camden and Rockport.
1: That is correct. Okay. We actually straddle the line between Camden and Rockport. And so we collect materials relating to the the history and the settlement of both towns because, you know, again, they were intertwined. They were one at one point. Oh, wow, that's really cool. Maine is right way up
0: north in our country, and it's right yeah. sort of on the border of Canada.
1: Correct. And were there border wars with Canada in your history? There were, actually. You know, the border with Canada wasn't settled until well after Maine statehood in 1839, 1840s. They they surveyed the areas but it's kind of funny you look at the old maps from 1820 1825 and because Maine is such a vast state surveying that area took such a long time And you look at the old maps and you'll see the sort of fanciful depiction of this long mountain range as a border that's mm. not actually true <laughs> and they figured that out later but settling the border was a challenge There was actually a bloodless war fought to determine the borderland um, between the united states and great britain because at that time canada was you know it was part of great britain right and it became especially difficult because Maine's one of Maine's industries was timber, you know, uh, logging and and harvesting trees for shipmass as well as paper making and all sorts of things. And there was some tension between Canada and Maine because uh, of the timber harvest. You know, who was coming over the border and harvesting trees that they shouldn't be. and You know, kind of a lawless area. You know, it's hard to patrol a border that big. So the the state historical record documents in the state archives are full of tales of, well, this person's harvesting where they shouldn't be. And, you know, there should be penalties. And trying to establish those early borders was tricky.
0: Wow, none of those border-related issues resulted mm-hmm. in
1: actual shots fired. No, no. I think there was one actual death uh, related to the Euristic War, and uh, according to the history, it was a a soldier who fell off the back of a wagon because he was drinking. Oh, my God! Now you mentioned yeah. you called it a Euristic War. It's called the Euristic, Euristic. War. A R O O S T. O-O-K, a rustic. It's one of the counties, okay. uh, the topmost County in Maine, and that was where the, the border dispute was. Wow. But that's all settled now. It is. Okay. It is. Wow. Uh, there's There's still, you know, it's still one of the least settled areas in the state because it's so far north, and it's just vast amounts of forest land. It's really beautiful, but also very remote.
0: Yeah, I noticed that when I was looking at the map of Maine, a lot of the mm-hmm. upper state is very
1: unpopulated. Correct. Yeah. There's a lot of hunting and fishing camps. You know, there's beautiful recreational areas, snowmobiling, fishing, any outdoor recreation you could think of. We are very, very fortunate in Maine to have such natural beauty, but the infrastructure, is also a little difficult, you know it's hard to get internet in all areas oh, of the that, state, yeah, so what's the history of your society oh that's a that's an interesting history, so it really grew out of <laughs> out of a donation, so there was this letter received in the mail by a gentleman named John Tewkesbury, and he had this offer of this it was basically a silver bugle that somebody wanted to donate to the society, but we didn't have a society back then. And this person thought that this this beautiful bugle should be given a good home, but they wanted to make sure it was going to go to someplace safe where it would be preserved in perpetuity. It had belonged to this gentleman named Paul Stevens. He was leader of the Camden band. And so when Mr. Tewksbury got note of this bugle that needed a home, he quickly got together with a few friends and said, hey, let's, let's form a historical society to preserve this bugle. And that was in 1938, and we've been in, in existence ever since. Wow, do you still have the bugle? We certainly do. Oh, it great. has a place of honor right in our research room at the Historical Society.
0: Oh, that's very really cool. Yeah, that's really a nice history. I'd like to uh, provide the listeners with the contact information for the Camden Rockport Historical Society before we go on, Heather. Certainly. The email is crhsme at net. Their visiting address is 7 Commercial Street, Rockport, Maine, 04857. And the mailing address is P.O. Box 747, Rockport, Maine, 04856. Their website is CamdenRockportHistoricalSociety.org. You can find them on Facebook as the Camden Rockport Historical Society. You can phone them at 207-236-2257. If you need help with genealogical research, you can connect with the society via their phone number, 207-236-2257, or email them at crhsme at myfairpoint.net and schedule an appointment. Does that all sound correct? Yes. Thank you. Heather, can you please provide the audience with an overview of the communities you serve, the variety of your membership, and the mission and objectives of your society?
1: Sure. So we serve primarily the communities of Camden and Rockport, Maine, and those communities are about 5,000 members in the winter time, and they usually triple in population in the summertime. We both those towns truly are very tourism based. So that's what we focus on is is telling the stories of those two communities membership we have um, a variety of, of memberships that uh, one could buy
0: Heather it's time for a first break for a few minutes okay all, all right listeners we'll be right back after these important messages
3: The Camden Rockport Historical Society, located at 7, Commercial Street, Rockport, Maine 04857. For over 80 years, the Society's mission has been to collect, preserve, and display historical artifacts, photographs, and documents pertaining to the Camden Rockport area. Whether you're visiting on vacation, planning to move to the area, or you live in the community, you can learn more about your society, become a member, and volunteer at Camden Rockport Historical Society. Dot .org and join them in accomplishing their worthwhile mission. It's a great thing to do to learn about this beautiful part of our country.
0: It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. On this segment of Book Shorts, we're very privileged to be joined by author Robin Rogers Healy, Ph.D., who is the editor of an excellent book entitled Quakerism in the Atlantic World, 1690-1830. This book is the third book in a three-book series called The New History of Quakerism. Each book is written by a different author. In addition to Dr. Healy, contributors to this volume include Richard C. Allen, Aaron Bell, Erica Canella. Elizabeth Kasdan, Andrew Fincham, Sidney Harker, Rosalind Johnson, Emma Lapsansky, Werner, John Mitchell, and Jeffrey Plank. We selected the third book in the series for this book short segment because it deals with Quakerism on both sides of the Atlantic in England and North America during the long 18th century. However, if you want to complete a deeper dive into Quakerism's history, the other two books in this series are well-reviewed. Dr. Robin Rogers Healy, PhD, has been involved with authoring over 14 books, many about the history of Quakerism and Quakers. She has more awards, honors, and accomplishments than we can cover in the short time we have here. You can find out all of that at the Trinity Western University website, which is www.twu.ca. Backslash profile, backslash Robin dash Rogers dash Healy. And you spell that R O B Y N N E dash Rogers, R O G E R S, dash Healy, H E A L E Y. Dr. Healy is a professor of history as well as co director of the Gender Studies Institute at Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia, Canada. She's currently the chair of the Conference of Quaker Historians and Archivists. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Robin Rogers Healy. Welcome to the program, Dr. Healy.
4: Thank you, Sean.
0: You know, I really appreciate this book coming from an expert such as yourself. I believe family historians all across the United States can benefit from reading it and applying the information shared. Can you give listeners an overview of your book? Quakerism in the Atlantic World, 1690 to 1830?
4: Well, the book deals with the period of Quakerism that we call, historians call, the long 18th century, which began in 1690. And we take it all the way up until 1830, which was after the period of what's known as the Hicksite Orthodox Separation. So for the authors and myself, I co-wrote a couple of chapters in the book and edited the rest. But for the authors, what we wanted to do is we wanted to re-engage the 18th century and question some of the traditional conclusions that exist about Quakers in that period and offer an opportunity for scholars to really re-engage in ideas, of the 18th century and what happened. So the 18th century for Quakers was a period where they became especially very distinctly how we might understand them stereotypically. So the garb, the clothing, the use of simple plain language, the vow, first day, second day, those kinds of things really came to be very, very important in the 18th century. This book is the third book in a series called New History of Quakerism series uh, published by Penn State University Press. It's currently the third of three. There are two more volumes in the series that are coming out, one on the 19th century, and then I have co-edited, along with a colleague, Carol Dale Spencer, one on gender and Quakerism in the 19th century. And so those books should be coming out in 2023.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Can you help us understand how this book can help family historians researching their Quaker ancestors?
4: I think they're... A couple of things. First of all, lots of people have Quaker ancestors. And if you are unfamiliar with Quakerism, the tendency is to make assumptions about your Quaker ancestors based on stereotypes that seem to have persevered about Quakers and Quakerism. So for instance, there will be this assumption that they were definitely pacifists, they were definitely abolitionists, they definitely believed in equality and those kinds of stereotypes. And it's not that those are always wrong, but they need to be nuanced. So for those who are interested in finding out more about their Quaker ancestors, this is a book that will help you to understand Quakers and Quakerism in a period where Quakers were very definitely on the move. At the beginning of the 18th century, Quakers were in England and Ireland, some in the Caribbean, and then along the mid-Atlantic seaboard in Philadelphia up into New York area. By the end of this period, however, Quakers had moved well into the interior of the United States. Meetings had expanded. And so there is a lot in here about Quakers generally and Quakerism in this period. Additionally, one of the things that I encourage folks who read this book to do is read the footnotes, look at the footnotes, look at where documents are located. Quaker archives are incredibly rich resources and there are so many archivists in those archives who are very helpful for family historians who want to find their ancestors and you will encounter those references in the footnotes.
0: Where's the best place to get a copy of your books?
4: You can go to the Penn State University Press website but my suggestion is to hit Amazon. The paperback version, which is going to be far more affordable for personal libraries as opposed to institutional libraries, the paperback is coming out um, at the beginning of October this year in 2022. And so it will be much more affordable.
0: Great. Thank you. Can people get a signed copy?
4: I have not signed any copies for sale, but I'm always happy to engage with anybody who has questions or even to sign a book plate and send it to somebody if you're interested. So for those who are interested in getting a signed book plate for their version of the book, you may reach out to me at my email address, which is robin, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E dot Healy, H-E-A-L-E-Y, at T-W-U dot C-A.
0: Thank you for doing that for people.
4: You're welcome. I'm always happy to engage with anybody who is interested in the work that I've done and that my colleagues have done.
0: I think you do brilliant work. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Healy, for your time today and for your books listeners pick up a copy of this book and the other books on Quakerism from Dr. Healy. This book can help you immediately understand more about your Quaker ancestors and the lives they led. Thank you, Dr. Healy, for being a guest on Book Shorts.
4: Thanks, Sean. It was my pleasure.
3: Transmission Intercepted. We interrupt
4: interrupt. interrupt your regularly
3: scheduled programming.
0: This is Mike Waddell, Vice President of the Muscatine County Genealogical Society, and you're listening to Sean Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Heather Moran from the Camden Rockport Historical Society in the great state of Maine and located in Rockport. Let's pick up where we left off, Heather. Welcome back. Hello. We were talking about the mission and objectives of your society, the variety of your membership, and the communities you serve, and thank you for all that information. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you came to do what you do now? (laughs)
1: Yes, I would love to. It it was a a field I never thought I would get into. I I went to university. I had a minor in history. I grew up in a very sort of scholarly family. Both my parents were, were historians and history buffs. But I wanted to follow a career in political science and law. So I, I went through university for that. And then, you know, life throws you a curve. I ended up meeting my my husband and we we had a child. So I was a stay-at-home mom for quite some time. And then my mother, who was director of the local library, the Camden Public Library, she wanted some help organizing some local history materials. She's like, oh, you know, if you like history, why don't you come help? I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> So that was just a few hours a week. And then that morphed into, before I knew it, a full-time job. And I ended up becoming director of the Walsh History Center at the Camden Public Library. And I did that for uh, well over a decade. Wow. In that time, I realized that perhaps I could follow in my mother's footsteps. And I ended up getting my master's degree in library and information science. And my career has just really taken off from there.
0: Well, it would be remiss of me not to go into a little bit about your accomplishments. So I put this in the introduction, but you've been the president of Camden Rockport Historical Society for the past six years. Yes. And in addition to that, and this is the important part, listeners, you are a lead archivist at the Maine State Archives. Correct. Right. And yes. you serve three terms as president of the Association of Maine Archives and Museums. Yes. And you also currently serve on the Maine Historical Records Advisory Board and you're co-chair of the New England Archivist Teaching with Primary Sources Roundtable.
1: That's correct. I was on the Maine Historical Records Advisory Board since 2011 with just a short break till I rejoined the board again this year. That's just amazing.
0: I also know that you're a member of the Friends of Mount Batty Tower Steering Committee. Not sure what yeah. that is. What is that?
1: So the Mount Batty Tower is is an iconic stone tower at the top of Mount Batty, which is uh, the mountain that literally touches the sea here in Camden. It's about 800 feet high, and the stone tower was built after World War One. It was actually dedicated in 1921 to honor not only the, the soldiers that served overseas, but all those on the home front in the Camden and Rockport area that provided support for those soldiers and for the war effort.
0: Cool. Very cool.
1: Now you're also a member
0: of the Legacy Rockport organization that, and it's an organization that identifies and helps fundraise for local history for preservation projects.
1: That is correct. And the, uh, the Lime Train that we spoke of earlier, uh, the Vulcan, um, is one of those projects. Wow.
0: A lot of listeners, I want you to listen to this very close, folks, because if you're, if you're ever on the fence about whether you have enough time to volunteer, this is the coup de Gras, <laughs> okay, uh beyond all that, as if you didn't have enough time, you also helped to update biographical information on approximately six thousand graves in Camden, Rockport, and Lincolnville for find a grave
1: that is correct yes that's that's a fun project
0: yeah that that would be great. You have to walk the cemeteries
1: i- I do. Quite often, I know it sounds weird, but I find cemeteries relaxing. And I like to go exploring old cemeteries just because of my love for history. And I have a particular interest in medical history. So I like looking at early graves to see, you know, evidence of, of epidemics through time and that sort of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but I do try to check up on the, um, the graves. And right now there's a wonderful... Stone restoration project happening in Mount View Cemetery in Camden, which is the largest cemetery in our area. And the stones just look astonishing. They were, they were blackened and, you know, had a lot of damage. And the Thomas Stevens Company has come in and done a magnificent job restoring those stones. So they are now readable. For all the genealogists and historians, you know, no longer do you have to guess at the names and dates. You can actually read them pretty clearly. That is really
0: very special. I can't tell yeah. you
1: the feeling that you get when
0: you go and find one of your ancestors' graves and it's not totally covered by weeds or
1: yes, you know,
0: <laughs> it hasn't been spray painted or, you know, things like that. Right. That's what right. I ran into when I was doing mine.
1: You know, I've heard stories about some uh, cemetery stones being repurposed, you know, by by farmers, you know, to either build a stone wall or people use them as part of their foundations. And I just think that's so disrespectful.
2: It is. Um, totally.
1: So we are fortunate here in this area that the cemeteries are pretty, pretty well maintained. Um, each each town, um, and maybe this is a New England thing, but each town seems to have its own historical society. So I think there's a, a pride of place. These historical societies do try to take care of, you know, the, the cemeteries and historical structures uh, in their that area. That's very, very nice. <laughs> a lot of places don't do that. No, they really don't. And it's it's a uh-huh. shame.
0: So what's coming up on the horizon for your society? Where are you headed
1: next? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it's it's been interesting because of COVID. We really took a pause like so many other organizations. We didn't like being closed because, you know, we, we like to be active and welcome the community into our space. But it it forced us in a way to slow down, take an evaluative look. At our collections, and really think hard about what it is that we're doing, and and why are we doing it? I think that as we become a more fast-paced society, society, uh, historical societies have had to really think hard and pivot to meet people where they are. You can't expect people to come in to your space as Often as before, so you have to meet them digitally. So that's, that's one of the focuses for us is getting a good handle on our collection, making sure everything is being cataloged and photographed and made available digitally on our website and thinking about educational programs for the upcoming years. We had a very successful pilot program for kids, where it was an immersive living history program for ages 7 to 12. Week-long program where they got to live as an early settler in the Camden-Rockport area. So we're building upon that. We're going to be offering more dates throughout the summer. We're hoping for a harvest festival. We've been working very closely for a couple of years with a professional living history interpreter group and they portray life in the late 1700s and they are using our homestead and our museum area as their home base so that's been hugely beneficial that has really helped us pivot and draw in more people we have a lot of people both participants from across the state, and we have a lot of people coming back to the museum, to the Historical Society, saying, gosh, you know, I didn't know you were here, or I remember coming here as a kid, but I didn't think you were operational. And so it's been fun to see the light come on in in people's eyes and realize, yeah, we're still here, and we're doing some fun things after." Uh, many years uh sort of dormancy. Oh, well, I'm glad you, you restarted. That's great. Yes, it's been very gratifying. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting
0: stories from the society's history?
1: I don't know if they're, if they're funny. It's not so much from the society's history, but from the, the town history. Camden had a number of mills from early settlement in the 1760s. And some were grist mills, some were sawmills, uh, but there was one that was a gunpowder factory. Mm -hmm. And that, that was interesting. It started in the 1840s, I think about 1846. And it produced about 5,000 kegs of gunpowder, which was, which was good for the lime industry. You know, they, they could use that but it also caused some some apprehension in the town and rightly so because less than a year into its operation it exploded oh my and you know fortunately nobody was was killed uh but they had trouble finding employees after that oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as as you can imagine um and there was one notable explosion I think it was around uh, 1853, where it was strong enough that it uh, blew out the, the candles and blew out all the windows in the lighthouse that is on Curtis Island, which sits, you know, in the outer part of Camden Harbor. So that's a good, you know, probably two or three miles from from the gunpowder mill, but it was, it was pretty strong. Hopefully that was so, the end of the mill. <laughs> it actually, it actually kept on. You know, they, they would rebuild it. And the story that I was told was this structure, this mill was the boards were tacked on basically with one nail. So when eventually it blew apart, it would, you know, it would blow apart pretty easily and you wouldn't have tons of nails and things as, as shrapnel flying oh, man, through the air. Crazy. I don't know.
0: You mentioned the homestead and people doing live history events there. What other kinds of exhibits are on display?
1: Like I said, it's been interesting in reevaluating and taking that pause to really think about what the Historical Society was and where we're going in the future. The jewel of the campus is our 1770s homestead. And so that has been maintained as it was at early settlement. There is also a museum on site, small museum. And in there we have textiles. We have a wonderful vintage clothing collection. I think the earliest piece of clothing we have is a woman's dress from 1820 Mm -hmm. all the way up through the 1960s. and. To me, and my understanding of the early historical society's operation was that the focus really was on the museum and, you know, showing off furniture and china and the sort of things that were common museum displays in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but not necessarily telling the story of occupation in particular not telling the story of the occupation of our homestead. So that's something that we have been really focused on in the last few years is drawing the focus from the objects to the stories of the people who actually lived in that homestead.
0: Right, that's very important.
1: It is. And so we have a number of outbuildings. We have a barn from 1870 that has such a vast variety of, of farm tools and things. So if people ever wanted to know about early blueberry harvesting or how to separate cream from milk or whatever, we probably have a, a tool to show you.
0: Oh, that's really we also
1: cool. have a, a working blacksmith shop and forge and a maple sugar shack.
0: Oh, wow. So you make your own maple sugar or maple syrup, we,
1: Yeah. So that is a big thing in, in the Northeast. And the last Sunday in March every year is, has been designated as Maine Maple Sunday. And that is an opportunity for all the maple producers. And there are hundreds within the state of Maine. They tap the trees, the maple trees. They harvest the syrup from January, February through to March. And then they boil it down. We don't have enough maple trees on our campus to realistically tap the trees and make syrup. But one of our board members, her daughter has plenty. And so she brings the sap down, in great big buckets. And she sets up in our sugar shack every year and does sugaring demonstrations for the public. And it is such a huge success. People just love it because not only can they watch the, the syrup being made boiled over the fire and it smells delicious. And it's just, you know, one of the first opportunities for people to sort of emerge from hibernation after the long Northern winter. People yeah. can get out and actually do something fun. And we serve up, you know, vanilla ice cream with the homemade maple syrup. We've had snow packed where you can pour the maple syrup on the snow and kids particularly love that because it hardens really fast into like a maple candy Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah so it's just really it's an interesting thing what i love about it is that it's something that people don't often think about or don't often see you know you go to the store you buy a, a jar of maple syrup But people don't think about where it comes from and how it's made. And so for kids in particular, to get to experience that firsthand, it's one of the reasons I love teaching history. You know, you you hook them in that way. Yeah. God bless that lady for doing that. Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. Her name is is Wendy and she does a, a magnificent job. I was reading somewhere... And I cannot remember
0: the numbers for the life of me, but it was—it was huge. The number of gallons of sap you have to have to boil down into syrup is yes, is
1: amazing. Yes, I believe it's forty gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup.
0: God, oh man, that is
1: something. Mm-hmm. Someday I'm going to get to your area, your <laughs> neck of the woods,
0: I should say, and do that watch.
1: Oh, I do hope so. That's a lot of fun. That's wonderful. Now, do you have any collections exhibited anywhere else? We do not currently. In the past, we have partnered with the Camden Public Library. They have a, a History Month and a Maritime Month. And so sometimes we have put in displays of photographs from our collections. One year we did a vintage clothing collection that was very popular. So we've partnered with them. And then there is a new hotel going up in Rockport. It's actually some very old brick structures that are being renovated into a hotel. It's absolutely magnificent. And yeah, one of our board members, Tyler Smith, is the lead engineer on that and the hotel has offered us a space once it's completed to display basically whatever we would like so what a great opportunity to show to visitors to the area some of the neat things that the historical society has to offer
0: Mm -hmm. that sounds very nice i noticed something in your area that i don't or i haven't yet seen in Mm -hmm. any other area that I've been in with these interviews, and that is you have a number of opera houses in the area.
1: Yes. Yes, we do. We have actually one in Camden and one in Rockport. Uh, They're both beautiful. And really, they're sort of a community gathering space. Camden had a huge, devastating fire. It burned half the town in 1892. Mm. And the, the previous community hall unfortunately, it was one of the things that was destroyed. In less than a year, the businessmen of, of Camden got together and were determined to rebuild the town. And they rebuilt everything in brick, which was certainly much better than the wooden structures that existed before from a firefighting perspective. But they rebuilt the opera house. And it's really, it's just stunning inside. And it's it's used every, uh, you know, for everything from school plays to performances by international musicians. So it's u- it's in use, I would say, nearly every week. It's just a really great space. And Rockport Opera House is a wooden structure, but equally is historical and beautiful. So, and it's used for the same thing, from community gatherings to musical performances.
0: That's really great. Now you mentioned yep, yep. fire. If your building were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out?
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's such a hard question. You know, part of me, like, I can't answer everything, can I? No, <laughs> no. Nope, nope. Boy, I would grab, selfishly speaking, I would grab this beautiful plum satin dress with beautiful jet black beadwork from the 1870s Ooh. it's just an amazing piece and i love vintage clothing so that is something that i would selfishly grab perhaps more importantly i i should grab some of the foundational documents um, from the 1700s and the in photographs from the mid 1800s that would that would be useful
0: yeah, okay cool do you have those digitized yet
1: We are working on that. So I've been working on digitizing the maps because we get a lot of questions about early settlement. And in particular, the archaeologist who was doing some site work for us was asking about early maps. So I figured, you know, we've got them, we might as well digitize them. But But they're, they're tricky to try to digitize properly, especially if they're oversized. So that's a work in progress. I've been picking my way through the paper collection and trying to digitize what I can because, you know, we have, we have a wonderful board, but only one paid employee and she focuses on the educational programming. So all the digitizing falls to me. Oh, wow. That's a lot of work. (laughs) It is. It is. So it's a little slow going some days. But I I try to put out new material as soon as I can. And I always um, feature things that are fun or quirky on Facebook.
0: What's the archaeology site doing?
1: Oh, that's, that's really fantastic. That started with a friendship that I had with an archaeologist by the name of Harbor Mitchell. And he was doing work excavating the the shell middens, the shell heaps up and down the coast when I was a young girl. And my parents happened to live right on the water. And he asked them if he could come excavate at their house. And they said, yeah, sure. Cool. And so I got to watch him do these test pits. And I was fascinated and I thought, oh, how cool would it be to be an archaeologist like Indiana Jones, you know? And then time went by and I went off to college and, you know, kind of lost touch with him. And then when I started at the society and realized that we, the society didn't have a good understanding of really what that early settlement looked like. We had this homestead that originally they thought was from 1780, 1790, but there was no good real basis in fact for that. So I got back in touch with Harbor and I said, hey, I've got this project. Do you know of anybody who might be willing to help us uncover that story, literally? And he's like, I'm retired. I'll help you, so he came in. God bless him. He gave his time and his energy for free and spent a couple of years excavating test pits all around our site, and what he did was he actually took the history of that site back another you know twenty thirty years, mm-hmm. so yeah, so he found all sorts of things from, you know, colonial era buttons, war of eighteen twelve, implements like, you know, forks and combs and that sort of thing. Evidence of life, you know, lived within that homestead. Pieces of pottery that he was then able to date back and say, you know, there was people living here earlier than you thought. And the two biggest finds, at least to me, were he found evidence of a stockade fence. He got all excited. He's found evidence of post holes. So you know the wood would decay, but it leaves a darker stain in the soil. Okay. And he noticed that there were several of these in the line. He's like, this is a stockade fence. And it was along the troop road. So right in the middle of the conflict be with the settlers and the British, here we are. We have evidence placing them right on this troop road, defending themselves against incursions from the British. So that was one exciting discovery. And then the other was he found evidence of Native American and settler interaction through some of the, the tools that he found in the soil, which was fascinating because... What we had assumed was that the tribes had all retreated north into the interior of the state, but there was here evidence in the in the soil of interaction. So that was really fascinating. And I'm I will be forever grateful to to Harbor Mitchell for doing that work for us.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. You have those artifacts still?
1: We do. We do. We have them on uh, display some of them. I mean, he found thousands of artifacts. So we have a, a small display of some of the earliest and the most fascinating ones that people can really look at and, and understand. So it's, it's been really great and so beneficial because to be able to show the community what, what people lived in that time, how they lived, what they wore, What they use to survive in a very tough environment has been very, very interesting and gratifying. Well, obviously, it's a great idea to support the Camden
0: Rockport Historical Society and donate. But what kind of funding model supports the society?
1: So, we really do exist for the most part on memberships and just the generous donations from the public. We did receive a bequest from somebody within the last three years that has really helped us a lot, but it's expensive to maintain these historical buildings. Uh some days it feels like a you know a money pit. So we really do appreciate any donation of any size. We ask the town of Camden for a small amount every year of four thousand dollars to help support our mission and they are have been very generous to give that to us because we do hold some of the you know the documents the early documents from the founding of the town. We have made requests to the town of Rockport in the past, but they are not funding organizations at the moment. So, so that's a little disappointing. But I write grants for a lot of what we do. We had to put a roof, half a roof on our 1870s barn a couple of years ago. So I wrote a grant and received money from the Davis Foundation for that. So that's really, that's our, our funding model. You know, we, we happily accept donations, uh, through PayPal or through check or even people just coming to visit at one of our events. They will often. Uh, give money because they're so pleased with what they've seen and experienced.
0: What type of fundraising activities or opportunities does your society offer?
1: We have uh, various events throughout the year uh, where people can come and experience a learning opportunity. They can make donations right there on site. We have history camps and the funds for history camp go to support you know, operations at the Historical Society. I have books that we do sell online. Um, you know, we have, as I mentioned, gifts. People will often make you know, gifts or, or just donations out of the blue. One of our board members set up a, a GoFundMe for a new route. And, you know, within just a couple of days, she had raised almost a thousand dollars and I know it doesn't sound like much but boy when you're trying to maintain a number of old buildings any amount really does help it really does go a long way. You,
0: you mentioned memberships and are there membership mm-hmm. levels?
1: There are um and so we have and this is a, something that we're looking at too is is there a better way to structure our memberships but for right now we have what we call sort of like the personal memberships. And those can be like single memberships for, for $20. You can have a family membership for up to four family members for $35. And then you can go up from there. And then we have the business side. Those are, those are larger dollar amounts. And something that we're thinking about too with, the new website is we actually have the ability to have a banner advertisement across the top of our website mm. um, so that's something in the future that we would like to do is offer that advertising to local businesses
0: i'm sorry to interrupt heather but it's time for a break for a few minutes sure. all right listeners we'll be right back after these important messages
4: Thank you for listening to Preservation Oaks. If you're a member of a museum, historical or genealogical society that has not yet been featured as a guest on our program, please let them know to contact preservationoaks at gmail.com. We welcome all inquiries. Thank you.
1: Explore the history of Camden and Rockport, Maine with the Camden Rockport Historical Society. Located at 7 Commercial Street, Rockport, Maine, 04857, in your own hometown. Bring your family, bring a friend, or just come on down to learn more about why they love Camden, Rockport,
3: Knox County, and Maine. Take your family history records down to the leading resource for Camden and Rockport genealogists and family historians. You'll get the help you need
1: and learn about why the Camden Rockport Historical Society, in Rockport, Maine, loves genealogy.
3: For hours, memberships, donations, or to volunteer, visit them on the web at CamdenRockportHistoricalSociety.org. You'll be glad you did. This is Kirk Dillon, a friend of Sean Radcliffe's. Preservation Oaks brings you unbeatable information about museums, cultural, heritage, historical, and genealogical societies across the United States. It is a most enjoyable program that enables the public to look under the covers, as it were, and to feel completely comfortable with their decision to donate, join, volunteer with and support their organization of choice. I strongly encourage you all to give three cheers to the unsung heroes that are our nation's preservation oaks, for the hard work they do at your local society. It's very important work that really must be done properly, with everyone in the community helping as much as possible. Please follow, like, and listen to each episode of Preservation Oaks, but much more importantly, do please join, donate, and volunteer at one or more of your local societies. Thank you very much.
4: Nine out of ten family historians agree Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet.
0: This is Bruce McEwen, the Chieftain of the Caledonian Society of Hawaii, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Brian Stuckey from the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum located in Gossel, Kansas. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks.
4: This is Ann Rollins from the Old Fort Genealogical Society, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Anna. You are listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation
3: Oaks. Back in time, when people got sick, they got well again due to the knowledge their mom had from her mom, and she in turn from her mom. And, well, you get the idea. A good knowledge of history is a good thing for all kinds of reasons when making decisions about the future. Learn the history of your ancestors and your community at your local historical or genealogical society. Historical traditions are there for a reason. Support your local society today and like a good mom, pass the knowledge on to your kids.
0: And now, back to Preservation Oak. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Heather Moran from the Camden Rockport Historical Society in Maine, located in Rockport, Maine. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Heather. Good to be back. You've mentioned a lot of things, the Sugar Shack, those kind of things, the live history events. What other kinds of outreach and education does the society undertake within the community?
1: We, in the past, have partnered with the Camden Public Library. During their History Month or Maritime Month, we bring in speakers both to our historical society, or we co-sponsor speakers at the Camden Library, really trying to make things fun for people, draw in speakers of you know local interest. One of the things I like to focus on is what I call sort of the lost arts or lost skills. So when we have a living history event, we had one every month throughout June through September, we would have those living history interpreters. But we also tried to have, there was a gentleman that we worked with, named Donald Rainville, and he worked for a number of years for the Peabody Museum as a furniture restoration expert. And he lives right across from our historical society and he has been invaluable to us in helping us figure out the priorities for maintaining our structure, our historic homestead, but also doing, you know, furniture repair or identifying the age of furniture for our visitors. And people find that fascinating. You know, anybody with a an interest in how people lived or an interest in antiques. They come and ask him questions, and that's been really fun. Yeah. So we, we do try to involve the public in sort of these lost art type things. We, uh, we had an event during Maple Sugar Sunday a number of years ago where we set up a shingle making station where kids could make their own cedar shingles they sat on it's a special bench and they would use a draw shave which is a special type of of woodworking knife to plane down these shingles and they got to take it home and they're like wow this is how this is made you know again trying to put people in touch with with their roots just because something comes from a big box store uh, you know, it had to be manufactured somehow. Not everything that's factory made is necessarily the best.
0: You betcha. But, uh, it's just so valuable. I mean,
1: that's great. It is. It is, because kids in particular remember that. Yep, they do. We make ink from berries and that sort of thing.
0: Oh, that's very cool.
1: What other work do you do with school children? Um, Well, we have the, the Living History events. So those are open to homeschool families, public school kids, anybody who wants to stop by. The history camps are open to them as well. I've gone into the schools in the past and given talks about the local history. I've led tours through, like walking tours through the town for the school kids. I remember doing one in the middle of February, and what I think was the absolute coldest day of the entire year. That was very interesting, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I love doing it because I love hooking kids into history. You know, oh. they they will appreciate the community, and they will appreciate their roots hopefully a little bit more when they see how the community evolved. Yep, yeah, absolutely, I agree with you.
0: Now, I know you have a Facebook page, and I would imagine that that's how you keep the community informed about your progress with relation to your goals and your mission. Do you use local newspapers or radio or television?
1: We do. Facebook is quick and easy, but I realize that not everybody is on Facebook. Our demographic in our community tends to be a little bit older, a lot are retired people who have come here, you know, after their working career. So we do rely on our local newspapers. There are two of them. One is called Village Soup or the Camden Herald, and the other is the Pen Bay Pilot. And I have a good relationship with both those papers, and they have been really fantastic about helping us get the word out about any events that might be happening at the Historical Society. There's also a small newspaper that is more countywide. It's called the Free Press, mm-hmm. and it is literally free. And you know, people don't have to subscribe to it; they can just pick it up at their local store. So that's been really great too. Not so much with television, although if there's something really big happening, you know, we will contact the local television stations, and we've gotten really good press from them in the past and I've done a couple radio spots with local radio talking about the historical society. that's great. Now besides the seventeen seventies homestead
0: and you've got the sugar mm-hmm. shack and the blacksmith shop and the barn, are there any other things or, or like historical markers or monuments or cemeteries
1: or things like that that the society cares for? There are monuments and markers throughout the towns that we keep an eye on. An example would be what's known as the Conway Boulder, which is essentially a very large rock that sits at one of the intersections in the center of Camden. And that has just a simple plaque on it honoring William Conway, who was a Union soldier in the Civil War who refused to haul down the US flag at the start of the conflict. Wow. He was from Camden. And so that was a big deal. Uh, he became the local hero, so to speak. And so he's always been recognized for that act of, of bravery. And he does have a relation to our historical society, um, because his cousins lived in the homestead. Um, the Conway sisters. Oh, so there is there is a linkage, a little tenuous there, but it is still a linkage. So why did um, someone
0: want him to haul down the U.S. flag? Maine would have been on
1: the side of the Union, right? That is right. But this was in Pensacola, Florida. Oh, Pensacola. Oh. Yes. So they he you know they wanted that hauled down and the uh, the Confederate flag put up, and he refused and ended up going to. You know, uh, Confederate prison for a while, but he has been commemorated for that act of bravery by this, the Conway Boulder. And back in the 1900s, they would have Conway Day. There was a, oh, cool. a day of parades and speeches and that sort of thing, you know, fairly common back in, in the turn of the century. They loved to have uh, events like that for for anything. We do keep an eye on that Boulder. And there's, you know, there's a Civil War monument in town. You know, it's a soldier depicted in granite with the names of the local men who fought in various conflicts up through the Civil War. And then there's another Veterans Memorial in the center of town near the Baptist Church. We don't have charge of those. We have no responsibility for them. But because we are the historical society, you know, we feel a sense of Pride in those and, you know, we, we would speak up if there was any danger to them or if there was something that needed to be done with them.
0: Yep. That's very true. Cool. Thank you for that, Heather. Sure. So, I know that you're probably getting donations from the public all the time. What kinds of records or artifacts has the society received as donations from the public?
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> we have received all sorts of things from uh let's see we have 1768 indenture papers we have any sort of farm implement that you could think of we've received a box of blacksmith tools just a, such a wide variety because I think the society back certainly when it first started they're like Bring us everything. If you're cleaning out your house, bring us everything. Yeah. And we really did get everything. <laughs> I we have about twenty typewriters. Now why they felt they needed to collect twenty typewriters, I'm not sure, but we have that many. We also we have a paper collection, and by that I mean we have documents, we have muster rolls from the Civil War. We have hundreds of photographs of the area. We try not to compete with the Camden Library because they also have a paper collection. They don't have room for objects or artifacts. So we've, we've talked between the two organizations and the way that it's sort of set up is that the Camden Library, you know, will collect more of the paper items, and we collect the the objects, the you know, the what I call touchable history. And that way, we're not uh, competing with each other. We do the the living history interpretation.
0: Very nice. Now you spoke about photographs. You have a book out. Called "Images of America: Camden and Rockport
1: Revisited," and yes, that, I do. That's available on Amazon, right? It is. It's also available through the publisher, which is Arcadia Press, and that will, that came out in 2015. That was a revision of work originally done by Barbara Dyer. That's correct. It's not so much a revision; it's a continuation and. Barbara Dyer was actually my great-aunt. She just passed away this year, and she was officially known as the town historian, and she made it her life's mission and you know in addition to having a full-time career at the shipyard, she collected the history of the area and she wrote a number of of self-published books telling the story of our towns so Arcadia Press the Images of America series is really neat because it's it's based on the photograph collections of different societies. And so she did her book, and then I realized that we had so many more really cool photos at the society. I thought that those should come to light. And um, I had a conversation with Arcadia Press, and they're like, bring it on we'd love to publish another book because you know the one that barb had done was really popular and i've been very gratified that you know the one that i did on behalf of the society to benefit the society has been very popular as well it's you know you can get it at the local stores as well as online
0: fantastic how many artifacts are in the collection of this?
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a great question. I was thinking about that before this podcast. And, boy, I just, I don't have a accurate figure for you because, you know, I would say we have 10,000 artifacts in just our museum. But then when you consider everything else we've got in our outbuildings from the homestead to the barn and all the other structures. Oh my word! I I want to say we're close to hundred thousand artifacts. Wow!
0: You used wow. past perfect to, to as a collections manager.
1: We used to. We used to. Um, and I found that uh, there's a program out there which is entirely web based that I absolutely fell in love with. It's called Catalog It. I t and what I love about it is that I can do the work in the comfort of my living room and I can have volunteers do the work at the same time. We don't have to be tied to a computer in the historical society. Oh, cool. Um, so it's been really phenomenal and they have you know, great support, IT support. And so they were phenomenal in migrating all the years of previous work that have been done in past perfect and setting that up in catalog it absolutely seamless and i would i would not ever go back i've been so pleased with them
0: oh that's great you must operate with a lot of volunteers in the area and i would imagine that you have some laid out kind of roles and responsibilities for volunteers What kinds of opportunities does
1: the society have for volunteers? Oh, we love volunteers. Really, I I like to talk to people and figure out what they are interested in because I think nothing kills a volunteer's dedication faster than giving them a task that they just don't have any sense of ownership for. So if I've got somebody who really loves woodworking, for example... You know, I would love for them to come in and help organize and write the history of our woodworking tools. If somebody's got an interest in vintage clothing, come in and help me research the clothing. I worked for a couple of years with a local high school student who was very, very into early fashion and she did a great job. She's photographed a portion of the clothing collection. She's done the research on the evolution of the styles throughout the the decades. And so that's been invaluable to me because now I can put that out online. If people want to come and be docents, if we want to help lead tours through the homestead, love to have them. Really, anything that somebody could propose to do, I would welcome them. For as much or as little time as they're able to give. People have very busy lives. So if they wanted to help write an article for the newsletter, fantastic. There's something for everybody.
0: That's great. And if I wanted to if I have an interest in becoming a volunteer, can I do it through the website?
1: You can. The easiest way is to just send an email, particularly in the winter months, because we do close down in the in the deep winter. So the best way to to get in touch is either send a message through Facebook or email and we can discuss what your interests are and what you'd like to do for us.
0: That's great. Thank you, Heather. I want to make sure that I mention your contact information. So the Camden Rockport Historical Society, you can email them at crhsme at myfairpoint.net. You can visit them at 7 Commercial Street, Rockport, Maine, 04857. You can mail them at PO Box 747, Rockport, Maine, 04856. Their website is camdenrockporthistoricalsociety.org. They're on Facebook as the Camden Rockport Historical Society. You can phone them at 207-236-2257. If you want help with genealogical research, you can connect at uh, the email address, C-R-H-S-M-E, at Net, or you can contact them via phone at 207-236-2257 and schedule an appointment. Now, the reason I mentioned the contact information is because I particularly believe you have a really great website. And Thank you, you so maintain much. that, evidently, yourself, or pretty much yourself. And it really looks good. What kinds of things are available to see and view on your website?
1: So we have um a number of things I call them tiles that you could click into on the website. Um We have what's called a featured item, so I try to change out the image and the story of of different cool things that I find in the collection and then we have. You know, sort of an about us, the history of the society, the history of the, the different buildings that we are responsible for. We have a link to our online collection. We have a link to uh, upcoming events and um, to our history camps. Uh, we haven't yet decided on dates for 2023, but that will be coming along shortly. So a number of things that you could explore, you could do a a deeper dive into the history of the community and in particular history of the settlement of our homestead and of the area.
0: That's very cool. I always ask this question, Heather, of every guest, because I think it's so important that we get your perspective. And, And the question is, today's society, just like every today's society that there ever has been in history, is changing all the time we have you know lgbtq themes and immigration going on and technology changes and just a ton of things going on in our country how does your society manage that how do you incorporate that into community outreach and exhibits and publications and the
1: records the society gathers and exhibits yeah oh that's a great question you're absolutely right. You know, society has changed so much and the writing and collection of history has changed so much in decades past. It was always, you know, written by the victor, so to speak, mm-hmm. or it was the stories of, you know, the, the well-off white settlers and mostly men. So it was a very narrow, history that was told, what we really need to be thinking about as collecting institutions is we are so rich as a community and as as human beings in the diversity that we have. We need to be focused much more broadly on being inclusive. Who, where are the gaps in our collections? How can we Tell those stories, whether it's, it's marginalized groups. Is it the story of women in the community? We want to make sure that we are not telling it from one perspective, but from many because you want people to feel welcomed and you want them to feel like they are represented in your collection. So that's, that's something that's very important. So you're looking at the gaps in your collection? Yes, yes, we do look at where the gaps are. And, you know, our, our written history in the Camden area, I think was very much written from the male perspective. You know, reading some of the books, it talks about the, you know, the shipbuilders. They became very successful men. You don't hear so much about the women and what they were doing at the same time you know you you don't hear about different groups in our community in our local community so really trying to take a step back and evaluate the stories that we're telling you know when we can't be just a furniture museum we can't just be a house museum you have to keep it alive you have to tell the stories, good and bad, about who lived there and what they were doing. History isn't pretty and it's not always nice. And Maine in particular has a very tangled history and unpleasant history when it comes to its treatment of the Native American tribes. Mm. So it's important to not leave that out. You have to make sure that all of the stories are being told, not just the ones that are nice. I think your members will really appreciate that approach very much. I hope so. I hope so. You know, it's very important to me. You you have to be inclusive and know what you don't know. You have to be able to be open to reevaluating your mission and your collection all the time.
0: Thank you for that. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the society that you really want people in your area to know about and support?
1: Yes. In terms of needs, as I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, trying to maintain these historic buildings uh, can get really expensive, and we have a great need right now um, to put a roof on our 1770s. Homestead. It is a wooden shingle roof because that is the style of those colonial buildings. And so we want to maintain it, you know, and have it be historically accurate. Unfortunately, you know, wood will degrade over the years, and uh, there are several spots in our roof that are seriously suffering. So we would certainly be very grateful for monetary donations toward. the the roof for the homestead. I would love to keep the history camps going. So if if somebody were able to donate in support of a history camp, we do offer scholarships for children who may not be able to afford the the fee. It's $150 for a week-long history camp. So if somebody wanted to help um, pay for a child to attend a camp, we would very much appreciate that.
2: Fantastic. Thank you.
1: What are your thoughts about how best to keep history
0: and community support flourishing for the current generation, the K through 12 folks?
1: That's a really great question. I'm so glad you asked. I think you really have to make history touchable. You know, I remember going to institutions, you know, museums when I was growing up, and it's My memory is of, of looking at exhibits you can't touch and everything being sort of walled off by stanchions, you know, by the ropes and thinking, oh, that's great. But, you know, it, it just feels remote. I really, really strongly push that history should be touchable and it should be interactive. So I don't try to hide history away. I want to make sure that there are things that guests, our visitors can handle and touch because if you could touch it and handle it, particularly kids, they can better understand it and they engage with it and they remember it. You know, passing through an old homestead, you know, they can look at the walls and, and walk away and be bored. They don't retain anything, but if they can learn from something that they're able to pick up and touch and use, they'll yeah. come back and they'll remember the experience. I dislike museums where you feel herded through. Yeah. And, you know, I don't like the sense of people, you know, the docents watching you because, oh, my goodness, you might get too close to an object. Well, if it's that fragile, then you know, maybe it shouldn't be out there. Yeah, <laughs> I know I, it's kind of an anarchist approach to, to history, but I really feel you lose people if they cannot engage with the material. Yep, I agree. Thank you for that. Sure. Thank you for asking that question. Oh, you're welcome. Why is the society
0: important to the community and what makes your society different or unique from others?
1: I think the historical society is important because it really tells the story of who we are, where we came from, how the community evolved, and it shows the the diversity of how we grew. You know, it it tells the story of occupation through time. And I think that we do that rather uniquely in our area because we have the living history interpretation component. There's There are many, many historical societies you can go through and you can view the wonderful exhibits and you can do uh, genealogy research. And that's fantastic. But to be able to go to an event where you can see professional interpreters and the ones that we work with have spent their careers working as professional interpreters at the state level. So, I mean, this is high-quality education, and, you know, to be able to have people from the community come in and experience that and view how the early settlers lived, and I think that's an incredible experience that you don't, Get necessarily in other organizations. It's a hands-on component that I think is critical. Now, Heather, is there any other information or any
0: other message you'd like the community or members to know about?
1: Yeah, I would, I would encourage them to visit the historical institutions in their area. Take time to talk to the docents. Take time to talk to the curators. Learn something different. You know, go outside your comfort zone and visit some place new also. You know, you'd be surprised at what you could what you could learn. If you're not able to travel, you know, you can visit places virtually. So it's a wide world out there of learning opportunities and I would encourage you to get out and explore in whatever way you are able to.
0: That's very good.
1: Reflecting just a bit. How do you think your
0: members, the volunteers, and the community be you and the society in terms of benefit
1: and value? I hope that they see the benefit to maintaining an organization that cares for our collective history. I know that there are so many different demands for for dollars and time, but I think that if we lose touch with our history, then we're really losing a, a part of our community. We're losing touch with ourselves and who we are and how we came to be. So I I really do hope that people will be encouraged to to explore what we have to offer at the Camden Rockport Historical Society a little bit more. But also again take time to explore your own Local institution and and encourage them to keep operating and offer your services as a volunteer. They will be thrilled to have you.
0: Thank you very much, Heather. I really appreciate you being a guest today. I've learned a lot. I've had a great time. I am honored to meet you. You do so much in the community. Um, have a great website. You're in a very historically significant area of our country and a very beautiful location. So it's been great to hear. Everything you're doing for the community, for your members, anybody would be proud to support the Camden Rockport Historical Society with their time and donations.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Sean. It has been an absolute pleasure to be with you, and I'm honored to meet you, and you are really doing a wonderful thing for local history organizations and collecting institutions this is fantastic, and I appreciate so much the opportunity to greet your listeners and welcome them into our space. So thank you for having me on board.
0: You yeah, are very welcome. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Heather Moran, the president of the Camden Rockport Historical Society, located in Rockport, Maine. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-ups coming up next.
3: I was made of tough rawhide by a master. He put a lot of special tooling on my horn, pommel, skirts, cantle, fenders, jockeys, strings, and cinch. My conchos were made of pure silver. I was presented to the first prize winner. That's where I met Matt. From then on, Matt used me on holidays, special trail rides, for parades, and other events. He would oil me, and wipe me down every time he used me. He was so proud of me, and I was happy to be a part of his tack. Years went by, and Matt used me less and less. Finally, I was used at his funeral with his favorite horse Annie. We looked great together. Then, I sat in the tack room for years. Finally, the ranch was sold, and I was discovered under a blanket of dust by the new owner. She marveled at me, and I can remember that day so well. She oiled me again and donated me to the local Historical Society Museum. They replaced the brittle latigos and strings, and even paid to retool them to match. I looked good again. Now, I'm on display for the community to see every day, and they marvel at the way I look and how I'm made. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of.
0: Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical
1: society, today. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back,
0: and holy cats! I've been excited to chat with Heather Moran, and I wasn't disappointed. What a fount of knowledge about Maine, Camden, and Rockport. The Mainers and visitors of Camden and Rockport should easily recognize that the president of the Camden Rockport Historical Society and the society itself is a very worthwhile cause and one that any community would be proud to have. Please volunteer. Join as a member. Donate, donate, donate. Visit and support the Camden Rockport Historical Society in any way you can. If you're just visiting the area, it's a great thing to attend one of their events, and especially if you're thinking of relocating to the area. This is a great organization to support wholeheartedly in order to establish yourself as a member of the community. Not only is Heather Moran a qualified and rock solid professional, she's totally knowledgeable about the history of the area, and it's a high probability that she's serving on one of the boards or committees helping to preserve that history. I think you'll agree that Heather Moran is a community service superstar. Having her on the program was such an honor. I know she wouldn't agree, but all I can think of is the scene from Wayne's World where Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar meet Alice Cooper.
2: We're not worthy, we're not worthy, we're, we're not, not worthy. worthy. We're we're stung. Stung. We're stung.
0: I'm just kidding around, of course, but now the most pressing priority of the Camden Rockport Historical Society is to get a new roof on the old Homestead cabin. This is crucial to preserve this for the future. Anyone in the area who can do the work of putting new shakes, shingles on that cabin, please by all means connect with the society. It really needs to get done. If you're like me and can't actually do the work to replace the roof, the least you can do is to connect with the Society and donate toward making it happen. The other need of the Society right now is donations to ensure the History Camp can be inclusive of as many children as possible. It costs only $150 per child and immerses the child in history for an entire week. That's a bargain. It takes a village to keep it going, so please give liberally to make this a reality for as many kids as possible. You know it's money well spent. The society's in the off-season from October through June. Once the season starts, they're all over it with a ton of education, community engagement, and fun events to spread knowledge of history, and especially the history of Camden-Rockport area far and wide. Lots of fun for the entire community. That all being said, I want to wish you all a very Happy New Year. For those in the Camden-Rockport area, if you don't know already, I want to tell you how unique and important your area is to this country of ours. You have and do contribute a whole lot to our success, and I for one thank you all for that. The Society is supported a little bit from the local government, but mostly by donations and volunteers. Please help support the Camden-Rockport Historical Society today. Heather reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the society so you know where the funds are going and what the priorities are. The Camden Rockport Historical Society located in Rockport, Maine is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. Now you can contact the society by email at at myfairpoint.net. You can visit them, and I hope you do, at 7 Commercial Street, Rockport, Maine, 04857. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 747, Rockport, Maine, 04856. The website is org. Of course, you can find them on Facebook. Their phone number is 207-236-2257. If you need help with genealogy research, you can connect with the Society via their phone number at 207-236-2257 or just email them at crhsme at myfairpoint.net and schedule an appointment. Now, there were a thousand questions I could have asked during our time together, but I didn't in the interest of time. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the Society via the contact information provided. If you're a listener in the area the Society serves or if you're a listener researching ancestors in the community the Society serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the Society. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Society is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Matt Steiner. Aurus Audio, Jesse Gallagher, RKVC, Scott Holmes, and Simblebird. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microStreamRadio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks.